0: Positive Feedback Loop
1: 3, two, 1 Hello everyone, welcome to Positive Feedback Loop, the podcast where we talk about a variety of things including culture, business, technology, and history, and we try to learn a lot about how people think about these things and just discuss these topics overall. Uh, my name is Ray, I'm a host. We have Stephanie, the Hi. other host. Hi, and, everyone. And we have a special guest today. She is the Assistant Dean of the Graduate School at Questrom School of Business. Her name is Karen Phillips.
2: Hello, happy to be here.
1: Right, and Karen has, been, has a long career in graduate academia. She's been a student affairs leader. She's worked with different types of student activities. Why, why don't, Karen, why don't you tell us about your background and your bio?
2: Sure. So I was very involved as an undergrad student, which sparked my interest to get into higher education in the first place. So that's kind of what made me get into student affairs in general. Um, And I've been pretty fortunate over my career to have a variety of positions within different realms of student affairs and academic affairs. And uh, my favorite position that I ever held probably which hopefully won't get me into trouble with other positions, is that I got to sail on semester at sea. And I, had, I was overseeing a sea of students. And I sailed on a ship with them around the world to 12 different countries. And there were 680 students. And I got to basically, they were in class while we were on the ship. And then when we were in the countries, we got to explore and, like, do all these different things. So, for me, after that, it was really important to be involved on some international and global level. So, it's great to be at Boston University where they value that. And I get exposed to different things.
1: Wow, that's very interesting. Tell us some of the stories that might have happened on this ship. Anything
2: (laughs) crazy or interesting? Oh, lots of crazy things. So, the students come from all over the world. So, they come from institutions within the U.S. and outside of the U.S. Um, and so there are definitely students that have different rules from where they come from. So we definitely had some, some like, culture drinking okay. and, you know, partying happening. But also students were exposed to a lot of things such as, you know, poverty and disease and things that they weren't a culture to in their own cultures. And I feel like it's such a short amount of time, you know, one semester, four months, that it's a lot packed in and it takes... A couple of years for students to really reflect on it and to ingrain it and to kind of absorb it. And I've actually, I wasn't going to mention this, but I just got accepted into a doctoral program, which I'm really excited about. Oh, wow.
1: Congratulations. Cool. Thank you.
2: But I'm hoping to do some research on how um, exposure to different cultures changes career paths for folks. So that's what I'm looking into doing my research on.
1: Wow. That's so, yeah, that's interesting. That's one
2: reason I uh, chose Boston
0: University, actually. Uh, because the student body wasn't just diverse in terms of ethnicities or races or religions, but also diverse in in internationalities. Like there were more students from other countries, and I wanted that experience. And I've seen my career path change as I've gone from working in the U.S. to being in Uruguay to going to school in Spain and in Australia. So it's like I really appreciate that international experience and how it really does change the way you view your own path, and the way you interface with others.
1: That is interesting. So I know you have a lot of experience at different schools as well. Correct. Uh, do you think that, so you've worked at uh, Suffolk University, Holt International School of Business, uh, Regis College, do you think that, as well as Providence College, do you think that uh, Questrom University is particularly special in the way that they bring diverse students into the campus, or how do you contrast between the different schools?
2: I do. I feel like a lot of my positions prior to Boston University were really overarching in student affairs in general. So at Boston University, I really enjoy that I get to focus just within the business school. So my all of my efforts and strategies and work goes toward just graduate studies within business, which is good because it's a little bit more focused. I think there's more we could be doing. And so some of that I'm exploring. Um, You know, we have international field seminars and we have a big international population, but I think there's more we could be doing in terms of diversity and inclusion and also have more of a global, more global cases in our curriculum, more global outreach, more global industries. You know, there's a lot of things that we could do. Um, But I think, yeah, I definitely think we're on the right path and it's fun to be at BU. I think it's an exciting time at BU. There's a lot of changes within And it's kind of an exciting time because people are open to new and innovative ideas, and we're getting to put some of those ideas into action. Into
1: practice, into action. Yeah. So, yeah, actually, that leads me to my next question. Could you describe your role at the university and maybe how that job can help you um, make some of these changes?
2: I got into student affairs or higher ed in general because I really liked working with students. That's probably my favorite part of the job. But this job is a little bit more removed from students, which is kind of, hmm. you know, strange in some ways because it's a little bit more so this strategic is a fun and kind of experience. This is, this is a very fun experience. Yeah, so it's great to be here with students. Thanks for having me. Sure. I don't know if I said that already. So yeah. So currently, I oversee the full time. MBA program, the part-time MBA program, the Masters of Mathematical Finance program, and the Masters of Management Studies program. Um, so with that comes professional development curriculum committees. So I sit on all of those committees, and I also oversee the PhDs as well. Um, so I sit on all of the committees for curriculum. So for example, if someone wants to pilot a new course, or somebody wants to change something within curriculum, or we want to change one of the classes in the mod systems or whatever it may be, that all has to go through a faculty committee and as part of my role I get to sit on that and give input based from the student side and the staff side and how that would be. Um, So I oversee the academic advising piece of that, but then I also oversee financial aid and all of the career coaching as well as some of the registrar functions and student services. Um, So one great thing that we just did this past year is that all of the student clubs and organizations for grad students within Questrom have always been through Central, the Central Student Activities Office, and we were able to kind of relinquish control of our students here so that we can advise and deal with their finances within the school to kind of cut out some of that red tape and middleman issues that students sometimes have. Um, So that's kind of my role. I oversee the career stuff and the academic stuff for all of the graduate programs and PhD programs. So it's a little bit more high level and not as in the weeds as I used to be, hmm. um, which is good and bad. Right. That's so. fascinating. As a,
0: as a club leader, I've seen the change from the SAO, the Student Activities Office in Central Boston University, and transferring that to the school and the, and the differences. It's almost like a lot of steps were cut out so that things are more direct. There's more direct decision-making. You can get an update on your funds more easily from Melissa. So it's been interesting to see those changes. I'm wondering, how do you in your job get input from student leaders on the education part or on the
2: club part? So that's actually a great question. So I'm relatively new to my role here at BU. I started um, a year ago in January, so it hasn't even been a year and a half. It seems longer, but I think that's in, in a good way it uh-huh. seems longer. So one of the first things that I actually did was look at some of the exit survey data. So every master's program, every student fills out sort of what we call an exit survey, which probably isn't the best name for it. But it's basically before you graduate, it's it's based on, you know, the learning outcomes of your program, but also the resources and services that students have access to. So when I, when I started, I took that report from the prior year and also had some focus groups with some students and took some of that into account to create some different initiatives. Um, So the student activities, you know, relinquishing control, that seemed to be like an easy, low-hanging fruit that could happen. Um, Another example of something we did was create, we created a program called Building Leadership Excellence. Students seem to have a real need for more soft skills development and management skills development that, you know, some students get exposure to in their organizational behavior courses, but sometimes Students still don't feel like super competent about becoming a manager when they leave here if they weren't a manager prior. Um, So we created this program where we're partnered with alumni who are now execs, and they come in on Saturday mornings. It's totally optional for students to come. They have to apply to be part of the program. And then they basically get, we we accept 30 students, and they get basically one-on-one access, or 30-to-one access, I guess you would say, for two hours on a soft skills topic. It engages alums in a way that's not asking them for money, but they get to come and meet other students, and a lot of those students have actually built connections because of that and been able to connect on LinkedIn and, you know, get connected with some other folks. I feel like that's a good program that I feel positive about that will continue, Um, and I actually just spoke to one of those alums right before I came to this podcast today.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Actually, so related to culture and, uh, you know, how to get these students to become more competent in these soft skills, how do you see culture affecting people's perceptions of introverted versus extroverted leaders? So do you think different cultures prefer one way or the other, and what have you seen? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I, I
2: definitely think that different cultures have different ingrained norms, and then folks naturally are either introverted or extroverted. I think in business it takes all kinds of leaders. I think it's really important to have introverted and extroverted leaders. I think in general, communication and being able to give and receive feedback is probably the most important skill as a manager or just to be successful in any type of role. So I feel you, very strongly about do
1: that. Do you keep into that topic? So you're saying um, give and receive feedback. What's the What problem is most common do you find? So they just can't give feedback because they're unsure about how the other person will feel? Are they afraid of giving feedback? Or maybe they don't that? have
0: the
2: skills to give the feedback. They don't
1: know what are the, know well what are skills? Well, I think
0: the
2: there's skills. a fear, right? I mean, it takes a certain level of courage. I guess it depends which way you're giving the feedback. If you're giving feedback to a peer, that would look very different than if you were giving feedback to your manager or your manager's manager or maybe a subordinate or someone that you supervise. So I think... Being able to understand how to give and receive feedback is really important, and I think I think receiving feedback is really difficult for people, especially new managers. Um, sometimes they're not ready for that, and so understanding that people are just trying to make things better and it's not a personal attack on folks, I think, is really important. What do you think is one way
0: to help oneself accept feedback and accept criticism? And to not have that gut reaction. I think
1: you're saying how do you separate the emotional side with just Yeah. The... Yeah. Because yeah. most people
0: have this visceral reaction to criticism, right?
2: Yes. I think it's definitely... I don't think you'll ever eliminate that emotional reaction. But I think a wise man once told me <laughs> that when someone gives you feedback, especially if you get defensive or have that sort of gut reaction, the first thing you say, no matter what it is, is thank you for the feedback because that lets them know that you've accepted it and it gives you at least 10 seconds to think about how are you going to react to it. So even if it's something that you might not feel great about, just saying thank you for the feedback gives you sort of a minute to bounce back before you give your reaction. For some folks, they might need to internalize it and then go back and have a conversation and that's okay, but I think being able to create a mindset or a culture where that's acceptable is really important. And so for I'll give an example. I, it'll be interesting to see if the people who report to me listen to this, and they, they, can, uh, they can give feedback to what they think. But when a, for my one-on-ones with everyone that I meet with every other week that reports to me, at the end of the meeting, I always say, do you have any feedback for me? And so initially, everyone's like, what? Because no one's expecting to hear that. Like It's yeah. kind of a strange question, right? And so everyone's always like, no, I don't have any feedback. Everything's good. But if you keep saying it, it ingrains that they know that you're open to it. And so after a while, they'll say, yeah, you know, I was thinking about this, and I think it might be better if we approach something this way. So I think it kind of creates a culture to show that you're willing to accept it. But it's also very scary as a manager and a supervisor to say that all the time because you don't know what's going to come back at you.
1: Have you noticed that those people start to ask you, do you have any feedback for me? Yes, yes. So
2: typically... If I was having a one-on-one, I would, I would bring up any feedback I had in general. So then at the end when they say, do you have any feedback, I'll say, well, just looping back to what we spoke about, You know, this is something we really need to focus on. Or So I try to not surprise them when they give the feedback question, but to sort of wrap it into what we're already talking about. It
0: would be interesting to, to just flip the coin now and talk more about how to give feedback. I was just thinking about this when I was giving feedback to a team a requirement. We're required to give feedback, so that's good. They were expecting it. Is that part of your curriculum? Right. It's part of my All curriculum. Is right. that yes. teaming with Hatch? Yeah. Uh, no. This is this year in in Strategy? platforms. Yes. In yes. Platforms. Okay. In good. an IS class, but we're required to give feedback, oh, and I'm happy to. Hear at that. first, your the initial reaction is, well, this doesn't look good, or this looks wrong, or whatever, and then I thought to myself, what if I presented this as an opportunity? which is something I learned subtly in management consulting with Professor McCormick. Uh, when you give slides to a client, you don't say, you should do this, right? You know, fix this in your company. You say, you have an opportunity to do this, or have you considered these interesting, fun ideas as positives rather than a fix? And so I took what I had learned and tried to incorporate it in the feedback I was giving. So I'm wondering if you have
2: insights, how do you give good feedback? I think that sounds pretty good but I think sure. saying, you know, in relation to this, have you thought about it this way instead of saying like I don't like the way this is being handled. So not framing it as a negative but maybe like you said, is there an opportunity to improve it or maybe if we looked at it this way we might do something differently. Once you start that dialogue, it also like empowers people to feel like they can make changes and they can go to you with suggestions. Um, And so I feel like I've definitely seen that in my role with my team. I think in the initial stages, there was a little bit of fear and, you know, kind of feeling each other out, like, what's going to happen here? What are the changes going to be? And I I do think that our team is very open now and would come to me if they felt like something wasn't going like it should. And, you know, we always have different struggles with different things. But I I think in general, we have a pretty good feedback culture. I think that's really important, even with students. Mm -hmm. So... I can get a very angry email from a student, and so I always take that as an opportunity to bring them in and say, hey, I got your email. I totally understand that you're frustrated. It might have been good if you worded it like this. And that usually starts with them being like, yeah, I should have. Or, right. And so, yeah, I mean, recently we had a student who sent out a lot of tweets in relation to our office uh, in the last few months. So I invited that student to come in, and I think they were really scared that they were, you know, in trouble. And they were not in trouble. I just wanted to talk to them about, like, clearly they had some sort of frustration with something our office was doing. So come on in and let's have a conversation. And it ended up being great. And I actually really enjoyed the student. But it's it's yeah. funny because I think people are afraid, especially with social media feedback, right? People just put it right. out there and they don't think anyone's going to Well, it's also,
0: it. it could show a gap in communication. So having angry tweets can actually be a signal that, there's some lack of signifier that shows that there's an openness. So even if your office is open, right, if there's no signifier for that, or there's no or that the perception has not been created yet, then they're they're going to find another avenue, right? It's almost like feedback without being feedback. You know, without right. being stated, you're learning, okay, there are actually still this segment somehow that's not feeling safe. Right. saying it. Why is that? Right. Why is that happening? It's interesting. Twitter is a whole interesting
2: Yes. Uh, I world. don't tweet.
0: You don't tweet, <laughs> but you are on But Instagram. I hear about the tweets. So. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting to see how people communicate and give feedback to companies, to each other. Yeah. Communicate. And even some of with, it's highly positive, some of it's highly negative.
2: Even with faculty, so you know, often in our office we get a lot of feedback about a particular course or a particular way that doesn't seem effective with faculty. And so encouraging, one, that students talk to faculty directly, which can be scary and, you know, courageous of the students. But then also sometimes, you know, having to call a faculty member when I'm clearly not an expert in their subject matter. I'm clearly not a faculty member myself, so there's a little bit of a credibility gap there with them sometimes. But calling a faculty member and saying, hey, like, this is some honest feedback that we're hearing. And I would say... 90% 90% of the time, faculty are super receptive to that, but I think it's just taking that step to give them the feedback to help tweak the class or frame it in a different way.
1: Yeah, it's also actually pretty important to address these tweets or topics or feedback as fast as possible, because if you have like a tweet just sitting there for a few mm-hmm. days or even it's a few weeks, emotions. it might fester <laughs> into like yeah. something that you can wind up losing control. So. Yeah, it right. sounds
0: like you're re- you're really bringing the openness, you're bringing people in and establishing that direct contact. So it sounds like you're creating a positive feedback loop. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. Love what I love there. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I think it's important to me that within our office, if there's a relational feel. Like, it shouldn't be transactional. I want it to right. feel like we're there to support students, not to just, like, help them process forms. Yeah. So, so really trying to get that mindset within the staff and then also, like emulate that out to the students so that they can see that that's really where we're at.
1: And I think as, as a student I really do appreciate that and I kind of feel that in the grad center so thank oh, you good. for that yeah. initiative.
0: So this is a really great place to pause uh, for a break and then we'll come back and talk more about what Dean Phillips thinks about the future of education. Alright. You're a graduate student here at Questrom and you've got a rad life. We want to see more of that life. You need to hashtag Questrom on your social media posts. Follow the Grad Center on Twitter, at Questrom Follow on Instagram, Dean Karen Phillips, at Dean Karen Phillips.
3: I started following Dean Karen Phillips just two days ago, and my hair grew back. It's amazing! You should do it too!
0: So we're sharing the student experience one hashtag at a time. Follow at Questrom and join the community by tagging hashtag Life in your
3: posts. Hi, welcome back to Positive Feedback Loop. This is Luis. I am back here for the second half of the podcast. Uh, Again, here with us with Karen Phillips, uh, who's going to tell us a little bit more about education and her experiences with it, and we're going to just have a fun time. So let's talk a little bit about the future of education. What can we expect coming down the pipeline? What are some of the advances in technology and how they affect education? Should you have any initial thoughts on this, Karen? Sure.
2: Not being clairvoyant and being able to tell the future. I do think Mm -hmm. that technology is going to play a big part of the future of education, especially online education. We, prior to the podcast, talked a little bit about MicroMasters, which is a direction that Questrom is moving in, working with edX and creating the MicroMasters with them, um, which actually is sort of, I don't know if you're aware, but is a gateway. So if people finish the MicroMasters on edX, they're able to actually apply and enroll in our full-time program here, and that will give them some credit towards the full-time program here. So it's interesting because... It is online and technology for education, but it's also looked at as a gateway to get people on campus enrolled in the classroom physically as well. Um, I think as much technology as there is and will be in the future that we don't even know anything about, I do think that a big piece of education is the relational factor and having touch points and personal connections with people. So that's something to be super mindful of when people are creating technologies. You know, I've seen a virtual classroom where it looks like the Brady Bunch where you know there's like <laughs> the three heads in the all in a row and people actually do get to know each other quite well if it's facilitated well. So I think technology is going to play a huge role, but it's really bringing that relational and connection piece into the technology that's going to help it be successful. So some of these these MOOCs we hear about where people are just lecturing the whole time A lot of the programs that people enroll in, the research shows that people kind of drop off as it goes on because they don't feel that personal connection and they don't have sort of any extracurricular, you know, association with that institution. So it'll be interesting to see. I obviously don't have the answers, but I think technology is definitely going to play a big role.
3: So So, uh, I actually have a follow-up on that. So I actually used to be... I've done a few courses on MOOCs before, uh, Coursera, and... I was curious, actually, about the recognition of these certificates or mm-hmm. micro uh, M- MBAs or whatever uh, title we're giving it. Uh, when you go out to the real world and you do, employers actually look at this and recognize it because it doesn't have the level of um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Knowledge? Acknow- yeah, it's, it's I not, it's not as, re- as respected as say, you know, just going to an actual college and doing your work there. Even though you are doing work, and in fact, it's the, the level of effort you have to put in to actually get through one of those courses, it's much higher because I remember just starting so many classes and not even getting through like the first two weeks. Just because I, I have time, I can do it whenever I want, and I'll just do it next, next time. I don't need to do it right now. That's kind of like the logical loops that you go through because you don't really need to do it, but it's still something, an actual tool for learning. So I'm wondering whether employers are currently in the industry, if you have any experience, uh, whether they recognize this or whether it's more just still in the growing phases.
2: Sure. That's a great question. So I think the credibility of the programs varies immensely. Um, They're just starting to do rankings of online programs, which is interesting because that hasn't really been a factor before. So it'll be interesting to see how rankings influence what programs become more popular. In terms of employers and corporations, I think a lot of employers are influencing, you know, the online technology companies to create specific programs that they want their employees to attend or go through. So there's actually a lot of tailored, competency-based programs that are being created that are super valuable to the employers that are having a say or having some sort of influence on what's being presented in those programs. So if you're just signing up for one randomly and it's not necessarily through your employer, I mean, it could be valuable to you down the road, but I don't know how credible it would be. I think for a lot of folks in the future of technology, I think a lot of employers in industry are going to help co-create them so that people feel Like, they're getting a tailored education to exactly what the market is or, you know, whatever the field is that they're going into. So I think it'll be interesting to see the role that industry actually plays. I do think in the future of education, and clearly I'm not an expert in that at all, but I do think that industry is going to play a lot more and they're going to be a lot more viewed as partners and um, be a lot more involved in the actual classroom, whereas now it's very much, you know, education and industry are seen as separate, whereas I think in the future it'll be a lot more combined and sort of co run. It I sounds so. like there's a merging of a lot of different areas of education,
0: not just of industry merging in with universities and in different ways that we've never seen, but also even the merging of this online and this residential right now. You know, there's a rating system for residential, there's a rating system for maybe online platforms, but what happens when you've got in a completely blended experience where the residential and the online, are? there's this spectrum. Where does the university then end and where does online education begin? I'm interested in also the vocational or industry aspects that already are at play in universities. So you see classes in business school who already bring a lot of these industry experts in or the MBAs are working on projects for companies. And so where does that end and begin? And you see that happening even at larger research universities, where they have postdocs, or they have PhDs doing research that is funded by a company. And you don't even know where the sponsorship or fundraising wing ends and the research wing begins. So this merging seems to be part of or maybe a symptom of education
2: moving into some future state. Yes, I would totally agree with that. I would say, so I don't know how familiar you are with our Master's in Management Studies program here, but that program was, it's basically a very innovative model that brings in Consulting projects for students, and they don't sit through tradi- traditional classes. They're here nine to four Monday through Thursday, just like they would be at a job. And they're basically meeting with execs and doing research and going out to market and working on these consulting projects for a full year um, on all different companies and different aspects. So. I do think that that's what people are more interested in. It gives them some more valid experience rather than just the educational component. So having those projects for industry, I think, is really important. But right, where it starts and where it ends, it's very mixed, depending on what program you're in and what institution you're at. And
1: Also, I, I wanted to add, I think the idea of having you know two, for an MBA, for example, two straight years of education and some projects thrown in the mix, it's... Particularly, it might not be as valuable as having maybe like a, a longer, um, you know, having that online education sponsored by the company and having it continue throughout the entire person's career. So have the company sponsor the employee to be educated throughout the, their entire career. Because that, that could be like a new model. So instead of having like, you know, you're going to go to school now and then you're going to start work, it'll be this like mix, this hybrid for the entire spe- entire person's mm-hmm. career. Well, actually, a lot of companies have
3: uh, required training hours and you need to do throughout. For example, throughout a year, for example, uh, the last company I worked at that did that, they had, for example, you needed to do forty hours of training within a one-year period. Otherwise, you were risking, uh, you know, administrative action. And although this training was mostly done by, like, you know, going through to particular training centers and didn't have any online component per se, except for, for maybe like one webinar. Um, I'm sure that they'll probably start using that. They can use MOOCs easily to kind of incre- kind of like pivot that functionality towards MOOCs to kind of make it easier for their, their workforce to become more skilled over time. And in fact, I would say that it, the thing that you want is not so much to have to sponsor your employees to be trained, but rather to sponsor your employees to make sure that you're creating curious employees who want to go out and learn as much as they can on their own and not just sitting through a webinar, which... They do a really easy quiz and then you're done, right? That's You want people who are curious. You want people who want to go out there and get new knowledge and bring it back. And knowledge is not something that your company is dictating is the knowledge they need because they, that doesn't account for the knowledge they might need tomorrow. It's only the knowledge they need today. So that's, I think, probably where things are probably going to go in that sense.
2: I think there's a lot of different avenues for the future of education. So I think that's definitely possible. And I think... Schools are trying to come up with more innovative models because people are sort of craving that and looking for that. And there's a lot of talk about, you know, what's the next thing and how can I get relevant experience while going to school. So I think there are many, many universities looking into this and researching it. So it'll be interesting to see what the results are in a few years. Well, you seem
0: like a very curious person yourself, like a person who loves learning. You're going to do a doctorate now. You also have had these international experiences. So you seem like the perfect person to guide the future of education. What kind of advice would you give to educators to incorporate the kind of learning you've incorporated in your
2: life? Good question. I think this is something we actually just spoke about this morning. It's really important for people to sort of question the status quo. So not getting too comfortable where you are. You don't want to just do everything because it's always worked before like there's always a way to improve something or make something better and so I think kind of constantly evolving and looking for ways you can do things better not just to change for change sake but ways to improve or ways to innovate or get more people engaged I think is really important um, I would definitely consider myself a lifelong learner for sure um, there's many different things that I'd like to learn about and Try to read. I think in general, for any profession, you you need to be able to give and receive feedback like we spoke about, but also be innovative and not sort of sit on your laurels once something's good and always be striving for something better. I don't know if that answered your question. Definitely. It's, <laughs>
0: it's interesting because there are skills that last a long time and there are those that don't. And I think of you know, people who were professional typists back in the day, and they, you know, they had this skill, they could type so fast, and now everyone is a typist. Everyone types. That has been kind of pushed out of being a a job, an industry. But then you have these skills like taking feedback, receiving feedback. You also have a skill such as just lifelong learning or Innovation or creativity or good listening skills or brainstorming skills that were totally relevant in the 1800s and they're still absolutely relevant today. So, how do you develop a mix of the right skills, right?
3: And going off of that, going into maybe more of the future as well, because that's kind of the theme of the second half, what do you see being some of the threats that are kind of seeing coming down the pipeline? That might disrupt the way that that uh, education currently works, and that might be an issue for the educational system in the U.S. Um, for the next 10 years, 15 years, that you kind of have can see coming down, or if not, you know, that you worry might be an issue?
2: Sure. So I think, in general, technology positions and jobs are growing, ever-growing, and some of the technology may start to replace or even eliminate jobs, maybe not to this extinction of typists necessarily, but um, I definitely think you know some roles will be affected and changed by technology. But there's also going to be roles created to create that technology as well. Um, so you know it's an ecosystem. So people are going to shift their focus, basically because they have to in yeah. some ways. But that doesn't mean everyone needs to go into technology. I would be poor at working in a technology <laughs> field, I believe. Um, I don't, I'm not even on Twitter, so I don't know what that says. But I think definitely things evolve and
0: yeah. workforce
2: changes. So as part of GMAC, Graduate Management Admissions Council, they put out a report every year with sort of like what are the industries that are growing, where are the most jobs. And so I think that's important for us to take into account when we're working with students so that we can be transparent with that information, yeah. especially on the career side of, you know, this market is... Getting smaller, this might be somewhere you want to focus your efforts based on your strengths or weaknesses. Um, So that's definitely something we take into account. But people are also going to find their own passions and want to follow what they want to do. So it's hard. I mean, we would never tell a student, like, you need to go into technology because that's the future. But I think if there's a student who is passionate, we clearly show them many different avenues and things that they can pursue.
3: So if, if for example, let's say truckers are being replaced by by automated Uh, robots en masse, you can't tell someone not that if they want to be a trucker to their heart's desire, you know, you can't be a trucker, but, you know, we're not the town for Footloose, but, you know, the the reality is (laughs) you're probably not going to find a job and you're probably going to have to train in a different sector and that's going to be difficult because there's a lot of those truckers that are going to need to go through the educational system and that's going to be one of the big issues that, that I think that I see coming as well. Uh, especially given the quanta scale of the issue that we're going to be having. Uh, there are
2: things that people might feel passionate and love about being a trucker that they could put towards something else yes. that would be just as relevant. Yes. Good point. Absolutely. Good
1: point. Yeah, so that makes sense to basically take that focus and energy and put it towards something where there is a future. Thank you very much, Dean Karen Phillips. Uh, we had a great, insightful conversation here. It is the end of, the, of our podcast for today.
3: So I just really wanted to thank Karen Phillips for sitting with us. Uh, You can follow her at at DeanKarenPhillips on Instagram. Also, uh, at QuestromGrad on Twitter. And uh, please do follow up at Plea for uh, hashtag QuestromLife if you have any interesting things that you're doing or uh, founder. Just want to
1: really brag about something cool you did.
0: Thanks so much for joining us, Karen. Thank you so much
2: for having me. This was a lot of fun.
1: On that note, uh, I would like to... Invite all our listeners to subscribe to SoundCloud slash PFL podcast. And we're also on iTunes and Twitter at the PFL podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great day. Thank you. And stay crazy. Stay Stay crazy. crazy.